In John Paul Jones, Part 1, we covered the rise of the Scottish upstart who ran away to sea, fled to America to avoid possible murder charges, and joined the Continental Navy to raid the British Home Isles. But in 1778, the Revolutionary War was still raging, and Jones had no intention of easing up on the British. Tonight, John Paul Jones, Part 2. When Jones returned to France in the spring of 1778, he expected a hero's welcome. Homecomings for Jones were always a touchy thing. He had been arrested, threatened with arrest, or forced to defend his conduct in battle upon three separate previous arrivals. This time, though, Jones had a prize in tow, the HMS Drake, and had survived a raid of the British Home Isles. Perhaps a year earlier, Jones would have been the talk of France, but times had changed. Now, France and the United States had formed a formal alliance, and Jones's raid was no longer in the spotlight, as the entire nation prepared to support the American cause. Jones's arrival was met with relative indifference, which may have been better than his previous homecomings, but still was a far cry from the universal acclaim that he was searching for. As the Americans organizing the alliance busied themselves with other matters, Jones began promoting his victory in upper-class French circles, but soon had to contend with the remaining personal baggage of his raid. Just prior to his arrival in France, he had assigned his mutinous first lieutenant, Thomas Simpson, command of the prize, HMS Drake, with orders to stay in formation with Jones's ship, the Ranger. Simpson, who was never keen to follow Jones's commands, immediately sailed away, and when the Ranger finally caught up with him, Jones placed him under arrest. The arrest of Simpson was a lingering issue back on land, as Jones simply didn't have the political clout on land necessary to match his prowess at sea. Jones had his account of the raid, and Simpson and the men had a very different account, leaving the American commissioners in France free to choose who to believe. Tired of the endless he said, they said, both Benjamin Franklin and John Adams urged Jones to drop the charges against Simpson, who agreed in the name of pragmatism. Simpson was given command of the Ranger and returned to America taking the mutinous New England crew with him. With the Ranger underway, headed back to America, Jones again found himself in his least favorite condition, shipless. He busied himself by making plans for future raids, hoping that American and French forces would eventually find him a vessel worthy of his commands. Jones discussed tactics with his French counterparts and also formulated his own strategic vision for starving the British Isles. Jones's strategic plans were ahead of his time. He planned on cutting off Britain's coal supply before winter, or intercepting her merchant convoys, hitting her in the pocketbook. As spring turned to summer, Jones became exceedingly restless. It was around this time as he wrote letters requesting command of a ship to any source that might provide him with one, that Jones penned one of his most famous quotes, I wish to have no connection with any ship that does not sail fast, for I intend to go in harm's way. Unfortunately, Jones's wishes did not come to fruition. What would become Jones's most famous ship first came to his attention when it was still named the Duc de Duras. It was an old merchant ship in the class generally termed East Indiamen, which were vessels that operated in trade between Europe and Southwest or Southeast Asia. Indiamen were built for maximum cargo capacity, 
but they also carried passengers and weapons. They were generally slow but sturdy. The Duc de Duras displaced 1,000 tons, had a length overall of 152 feet, a beam of 40 feet, and could carry around 40 guns. Fully manned, she would carry around 380 men, as Jones planned to pack her full of marines and sharpshooters, who could be used to even the odds in a fight or raid the English countryside as needed. Despite Jones's famous quote that he wanted nothing to do with a slow ship, he pushed to receive command of the Duc de Duras. Just as Jones had previously examined the sloop Providence and realized her handling characteristics could be useful against British frigates, Jones knew that even an old, top-heavy merchant ship like the Duc de Duras had its advantages. He had the favorable command ability to always view the glass as half full, at least where military tactics were concerned. One of her advantages was the antiquated high quarterdeck, which would play into Jones's strategy to overwhelm the enemy with small arms fire. One thing about the Duc de Duras wouldn't do for Jones. He changed her name to the Bonhomme Richard in honor of Benjamin Franklin, whose Poor Richard Almanac was titled in French as Les Maximes du Bonhomme Richard. America's now official ally, France, agreed to purchase the Bonhomme Richard for service under Jones. Jones expected to have free reign to raid to his liking again, but a much larger plan was in the works. In the summer of 1779, the French were planning an invasion of England with a fleet of ships and a 40,000-man landing force. Jones was given a squadron in order to perform a diversionary action that would allow the main body of the Franco-Spanish fleet time to maneuver as needed. In addition to Bonhomme Richard, Jones's squadron consisted of Alliance, a purpose-built American frigate of 36 guns, and the French ships Palace, 32 guns, Surf, 18 guns, and Vengeance, 12 guns. As usual, in addition to the ships, Jones also inherited problems with their crews. The main thorn in Jones's side for this voyage would be Pierre Londice, a Frenchman serving in the Continental Navy as captain of the Alliance. Captain Londice had served in the French Navy, but saw more opportunity in the American cause. He somehow managed to play the political game better than Jones, and had received command of one of the United States' new purpose-built frigates. He was quick to collide with Jones, literally, in June of 1779, when the squadron was on convoy escort duty. The Bonhomme Richard and Alliance collided under darkness, with the latter losing her mizzenmast in the process. Jones blamed Londice for not preventing the collision. Indeed, Londice had heard shouting, but had prepared to repel a mutiny, not to prevent a disaster. After this incident, Jones considered his seamanship skills in great question. By August, Jones's squadron departed for their diversionary mission, part of the great invasion of England. But the invasion was called off almost as soon as it began. The combined Franco-Spanish fleet that was to make the assault was racked by an epidemic. Facing a massive manpower shortage due to disease, and maybe only half-heartedly attempting to invade England in the first place, the fleet turned back, leaving Jones and his vanguard the only attacking force in the British Isles, as he had been the previous year. The dispute between Jones and Captain Londice came to a head when Londice came on board the Bonhomme Richard to discuss tactics. Upset at desertions within the squadron, and what he perceived to be a conservative policy when it came to prize-taking, Londice rebuked Jones. The two almost came to blows, and close to fighting a duel. For the remainder of the voyage, Londice and the other French captains 
operated like independent contractors, ignoring Jones whenever they saw fit. It was the same old story that Jones had faced since the beginning of the war. He wanted to raid, ransom, and plunder to further the winning of the war. He was not opposed to taking prizes, but it was not his only goal. Most other officers were only concerned with prizes. Moreover, now in command of the tortoise-like Bonhomme Richard, taking prizes had become exceedingly difficult. The two desires were often mutually exclusive, and Jones's squadron fragmented into divisions over which he again possessed limited control. Jones sailed northward, up the western coast of Ireland, and rounded the British Isles. In September, he arrived at the Firth of Forth, just outside of Edinburgh, Scotland. Jones intended to extract a large ransom from the city of Leith. He parlayed with the captains of the palace and vengeance, attempting to convince them to participate, since orders no longer held sway in the divided squadron. Jones was about to send the marine detachment ashore to demand a 200,000-pound ransom when a local cutter came alongside. Convinced Jones was a British captain, they asked for gunpowder to shore up the city's defenses, as rumor had spread that the evil pirate Paul Jones was again on the prowl. This only emboldened Jones, who took the men prisoner and used them as pilots to advance toward the city. Just as the final phase of the plan was being launched, the weather turned foul, and Jones had to turn back, with only a 20-gun vessel standing as his opposition. Jones was crestfallen at the lost opportunity. He briefly considered attacking the city of Newcastle and burning its coal shipping fleet, which would greatly wound Britain in the upcoming winter. His fellow captains, however, refused to undertake this plan, as they felt their cover had already been blown. The invasion of England had been aborted, and Jones's schemes were amounting to nothing. It was mid-September, and Jones had orders to escort a convoy by early October. This gave him precious little time to strike a blow for the war effort. On September 23rd, Jones's luck changed. His lookout sighted numerous prizes, enough to be a proper convoy, while cruising off the eastern coast of Yorkshire, England. The convoy was indeed the Baltic Fleet, 40-plus merchant ships laden with naval stores, the timber, and other accoutrements that England needed to build and maintain its navy. It was a huge prize, and would be well defended by Royal Navy escorts. Still, Jones's crews, and indeed his entire naval career, had fallen well short of his epic quest for glory, and he decided to go all in on an engagement. Jones knew he could not outmaneuver his opponents. He also knew he could not necessarily depend on the other ships in his squadron for support. His strategy was simply to pummel the enemy with unrelenting firepower from the Bonhomme Richard and attempt to capture his enemy by boarding. He would split his guns between firing at the enemy's hulls and breaking up their rigging, slowing them to a more even match, while his extra-large marine contingent would lay down deadly fire on deck, eliminating command and control and morale. The enemy was HMS Serapis, 44 guns, and her escort cutter, Countess of Scarborough, 22 guns. They would engage Jones around dusk in order to protect the valuable Baltic fleet and with the added goal of ending Jones's exploits in British home waters once and for all. The battle began just around sunset. As the convoy fled, the warships fired their initial broadsides, which landed with deadly accuracy. There was carnage on both ships, with Bonhomme Richard suffering an initial explosion of several of her guns that left many dead and wounded. 
Serapis then used her superior maneuverability to rake Bonhomme Richard's stern, a deadly maneuver that sent shot into the most vulnerable part of the ship, as well as flying down the length of the deck. Bonhomme Richard had scores of casualties, holes in her hull, and was all but dead in the water. The Serapis continued her assault with superior maneuverability and well-trained gun crews hammering away at the American vessel. Serapis was close to finishing the battle, as she now attempted to rake Bonhomme Richard by the bow, just as she had done to the stern. But the heavier Bonhomme Richard collided with her stern, and the Americans attempted a boarding to try to even the odds. The boarding failed, and the two ships drifted apart, but the battle was still very close to being over. Jones was well aware that his naval career was about to end. Remember, if he fell into British hands, he would likely be hanged for piracy for his previous raids on Britain, not imprisoned or exchanged according to the gentlemanly rules of war. He now attempted to do what the Serapis had almost just done, cross the enemy's bow. In the process, the Serapis collided with Bonhomme Richard again. Her jib boom became jammed in Bonhomme Richard's rigging. Jones ordered his men to lash the two ships together, which they quickly did. Seeing this, Captain Pearson of the Serapis let go an anchor in hopes Bonhomme Richard would slowly drift off. But his port anchor became wedged in Bonhomme Richard's hull, and the two ships were now essentially moored to each other. They came to rest side by side, facing opposite directions, with their gun decks firing into each other at point-blank range. One of the few American advantages, the Marine Detachment, was now able to exert its influence. With the two ships essentially becoming one, a twisted and tangled mass of wood, canvas, and rope, the American and French sharpshooters laid down deadly small arms fire and grenade blasts upon the deck of Serapis. Bonhomme Richard's sharpshooters were its last hope. Most of her guns were down, either blown to bits or their crews dead or injured. Serapis's guns were still firing, protected from the small arms fire by the weather deck. In the midst of this moonlit apocalyptic scene, Jones personally fired one of the few remaining cannon in an attempt to topple Serapis's mainmast. It had been more than an hour since the first shot, and both ships were intertwined, burning, and Bonhomme Richard was sinking. It was said that the Bonhomme Richard's hull had so many holes in it that shots from the Serapis were passing through the holes in the inboard hull, through to the holes in the outboard hull, and striking nothing in between. Suddenly, out of the darkness, the frigate Alliance appeared, with Captain Londice ordering the firing on both ships. The shots from the Alliance killed as many men on Bonhomme Richard as they did on the enemy. This enraged Jones, who couldn't afford to lose more men to one of his own ships. Just as Alliance appeared and fired a few volleys, she disappeared again into the darkness. With death and fire all around, the ranking warrant officers, who believed Jones to be dead, attempted to surrender. Jones wasn't dead, however. He was just busy with his last remaining cannon targeting the Serapis. He saw his men attempting to haul down the Stars and Stripes, still flying at the mainmast. Jones drew his pistol and fired, but nothing happened, as his pistol was already empty from battle. He instead hurled the worthless weapon at his own men. It was at this moment that Jones attained legendary status. With the confusion of the attempted surrender, Serapis called out for confirmation that Bonhomme Richard was indeed surrendering. Jones's reply became his most famous quote, I have not yet begun to fight. Due to the cacophony of battle, it's unknown if this is actually what Jones said. Jones himself would later say that he said something to the effect of, I may sink, but I damned well won't surrender. Whatever his exact phrasing, 
His indignant remarks were met with a British boarding party. To make matters worse, the British prisoners on board, taken from various prizes over the previous weeks, had been freed from the hold before they drowned, and it was possible that the British could have surrounded Jones from both sides. However, all of the men on both ships had already endured the worst 18th century naval warfare had to offer, and the clash between Jones's men and the boarding party fizzled out. Now the Alliance returned for another indiscriminate assault on the rested hulks of the ships. Bonhomme Richard could not stand much more of an assault. Morale was low and sinking fast, as was the ship itself. It appeared that the battle might end in some sort of sick stalemate, with both ships a total loss, or perhaps the Serapis afloat, but unable to further function as a warship. However, Jones's strategy to concentrate power aloft with the large marine detachment would finally be the deciding factor in the battle. With the ships hopelessly intertwined, especially in the rigging, the surviving sharpshooters were able to transfer over to Serapis and lob down a quantity of deadly grenades. The grenades found their way through an open hatch to the gun deck, where the frantic nature of the battle had resulted in spilled and excess gunpowder laying about. The entire gun deck erupted in an incendiary maelstrom, and this, combined with the near destruction of the mainmast, destroyed Serapis's ability to continue the fight. Aboard Serapis, Captain Pearson called for quarter. He had done his duty and protected the Baltic fleet from capture, and figured he could gain no more by continuing the fight. Jones demanded that his flag be struck, and upon this happening, the battle was over. It had been a three-hour affair, particularly bloody, even for sea battles of the era. Many onlookers had watched the horrific scene from the Yorkshire coast as the two opposing crews slaughtered each other by moonlight. Jones sent men to take possession of the Serapis. But Bonhomme Richard's sinking was an even larger concern. Jones had the guns jettisoned to keep her afloat, and then ordered the gunpowder to be moved above deck to keep the ship from exploding. Jones met with Captain Pearson of the Serapis, who was assuaged by the fact that he had surrendered to an American instead of the French. Living to accept the surrender of a Royal Navy captain must have been an exalted moment for Jones. Despite his best efforts over the day, Jones could not save Bonhomme Richard. She had enormous holes in her hull and slipped below the waves. Jones transferred the survivors and his flag to Serapis, not much better off. There was no time to rest, as he now had to make the ship he had just tried to destroy seaworthy enough to outrun the Royal Navy for the trip back to the continent. Jones's unruly squadron also returned. Alliance and Palace had engaged and defeated the cutter Countess of Scarborough, but Jones was still angry at the lack of support he'd received from the other ships, and especially outraged at Captain Londice for his questionable tactics in the battle. Jones had his epic victory, which was to be known to history as the Battle of Flamborough Head. He was only 32 years old, hard for us to imagine today when captains and admirals are almost exclusively in their 50s and 60s. As with his previous exploits, the victory was bittersweet. He'd lost his flagship in gaining the Serapis. Captain Pearson had done his duty in protecting the valuable Baltic convoy. It was a Pyrrhic victory, though the larger goal of inflicting fear on the British countryside was again achieved. Jones and his squadron arrived in Amsterdam in early October. He successfully outran a squadron of Royal Navy ships sent to intercept him, which only heightened his newfound legendary status. Reviled in Britain as a pirate and a brute, he was a celebrity in Amsterdam. A neutral port Throngs of people came out to see the curious sea captain dressed in a British uniform who had just earlier defeated a British ship. <laughs>
Jones's focus was dealing with the business of the aftermath of battle. He had hundreds of prisoners in tow, including Captain Pearson, and he wanted to exchange them for American prisoners being held by the British. He also wrote and distributed a copy of his account of the squadron's voyage, including Captain Londice's miserly role in all affairs. In keeping with his personal tradition of being unlucky on land, Jones's efforts in Amsterdam seemed to go nowhere. The prisoner exchange stalled amid bureaucratic red tape. Deaths and desertions among his men continued to climb. The British, unable to defeat Jones at sea, now attempted to defeat him through diplomatic means on land by applying pressure to the Dutch. Jones was in way over his head as the British, French, and Dutch agendas all trumped the agenda of the upstart Americans. Over the course of the fall of 1779, Jones wore out his welcome in Amsterdam and was ordered to leave. His squadron was turned over to the French save the alliance, of which he was now captain. There was a bigger problem. Just seaward of Amsterdam, the Royal Navy awaited to capture Jones as soon as he departed. His only chance was to delay till winter weather forced the British off station. Jones found reason after reason to delay departure, even as the Dutch protests became furious. The weather finally worsened in the final days of 1779. Free from the sluggishness of Bonhomme Richard, Jones raced the Alliance out of the Netherlands and straight down the English Channel, sailing right past the British fleet in foggy winter weather. Jones headed for Spain, where he hoped to resume taking prizes, but was in poor condition to do so. Again, he had a mutinous crew, largely inherited from Londice and they were upset at their lack of pay and provisions. The alliance was not in fighting shape, and another raid of Britain was out of the question. Facing reality, Jones returned to France in the spring of 1780. As he was in Amsterdam, Jones became a celebrity in French society. He met King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette, attended balls, the theater, and parades in his honor. He caroused with the ladies of Paris, but in June was ordered to sail the Alliance back to America, carrying a load of war supplies to the Continental Army. Jones was enjoying his time ashore and was spending too much time basking in his celebrity status and not enough time with his ship. When he finally returned to Alliance at the port of Lorient in mid-June of 1780, he found his nemesis, Londice, masquerading as her captain. In Jones's absence, he had taken charge of his old crew, purged it of any Jones loyalists, and had no intention of relinquishing his newly claimed command. Instead of directly challenging Londice, Jones appealed to the French, who sided with him and prepared to fire on the alliance if it attempted to leave port with a usurper captain in command. Surprisingly, it was Jones who then backed down. He allowed the Alliance to sail for America with Londice in command. The events of June 1780 are a major leadership failure on Jones's part. Not only did his personal life prevent him from attending to his duty, he embarrassingly allowed Londice to take command of the frigate despite holding written orders to the contrary. Furthermore, Jones's inattention to the Alliance meant that most of the needed war supplies were left on the docks at Lorient, in favor of personal baggage being carried instead. With the war still raging in the South, and Washington facing mutinies in the North, the supplies were desperately needed by the American cause. His failure to convey the supplies almost negates those he earlier captured when he took the supply ship Mellish earlier in the war. Jones's handler, Benjamin Franklin, was furious, but he procured him a French frigate, the Ariel, and ordered him again to sail to America and deliver the supplies. But Jones appeared to be in something of a downward spiral. 
Although he had often claimed to be solely interested in what was best for the American war effort, perhaps ferrying supplies simply didn't excite Jones. He wanted to return to America only if it meant a greater command, and another return to Britain with a bigger and more powerful squadron. Jones was engaging in affairs with various women of Lorient, including the 17-year-old wife of a shipping agent. He appeared wholly uninterested in getting underway. He was also concerned about the prize money from the previous raid on Britain, which had never materialized. Jones found ways to delay his departure until early October of 1780. He had accomplished very little in the year since his grand battle against Serapis. When he finally got underway, Jones's luck at sea had run out. picked the wrong time to begin a westerly transatlantic voyage and immediately ran into a monster of a storm. The area was laden with supplies and in a time before load lines may have been overloaded. As the storm worsened, the aerial was in grave danger of either broaching or being shredded by rocks in the Bay of Biscay. Amidst a terrifying night at sea and with pumps failing, Jones took a desperate gamble to save the ship. He let go an anchor and simultaneously cut away the foremast in an attempt to ride out the storm. The absence of the mast relieved the pressure on the vessel somewhat, but not before the stresses on the hull carried away both of the other two masts and anchors. Only the single anchor stood between Jones and certain death. Finally, the storm abated and the men of the Ariel constructed a makeshift mast to allow them to return to their embarkation port. Ariel was remasted and repaired, and finally left the continent in late December of 1780. Jones headed south to avoid British warships, and crossed the Atlantic at the latitude of the West Indies. There he encountered a loyalist privateer, the Triumph, 24 guns. Slightly outgunned, Jones attempted to pose as a British vessel, the ruse that had worked so well for him, at least initially, in the past. Eventually, he dropped the ruse and engaged the Triumph at point-blank range. Jones was a sea veteran, and part of his crew were also veterans of the Bonhomme Richard. He made short work of the Triumph, which quickly surrendered. However, after surrendering, she took advantage of Jones trusting the rules of war, laid on sail, and made a hasty escape. This embarrassment was not lost on Jones, and when he arrived in Philadelphia in February of 1781, he had to do so without a prize in tow. When Jones arrived in Philadelphia, he found himself embroiled in a congressional inquiry. The supplies he had delivered the better part of a year late were desperately needed, and their lateness had not gone unnoticed. Jones's naval career may have been in real trouble if not for the saving grace that his rival, Captain Londice, had practically gone mad on his return voyage with the Alliance. As a result, Jones was able to blame any delays on weather and the madman Captain Londice. The inquiry was dismissed and Jones's reputation as a naval hero remained intact. So much so, in fact, that Jones was pleased to receive command of the 74-gun ship of the line America, the largest and most prestigious warship the United States could muster, being constructed in New Hampshire. There was also talk that he would be promoted to the Navy's first flag rank. Jones rushed to New Hampshire to inspect and oversee the construction of the ship, but found progress solely lacking. Now beginning year six of the war, money and materiel had dried up, and Jones was no closer to taking a fast ship into British waters than he had been at the outset of the war. While in Portsmouth, Jones received bittersweet news, at least from his vantage point, from the South. Cornwallis had surrendered Britain's southern army to Washington, a major blow to the British war effort that meant the beginning of the end of the war. To make matters worse, 
Yorktown had been facilitated by a great sea battle between the French and British fleets, and Jones had had no part in it, nor did any American. His dreams of further personal glory and a powerful and respected American Navy were beginning to dissipate. With the British threat somewhat abating, the bankrupt Congress stripped Jones of his command of America and awarded the unfinished vessel to the French as partial reparations for their war debt. Jones, wary of peace and unsure of the correct next move, headed south in search of a ship. He resigned himself to signing on to a French expedition to attack the British colony of Jamaica. The expedition fell apart en route, just as the planned invasion of England had done a few years earlier, and news of a final peace between the United States and Britain ended any future plans of naval action. Jones was now a peacetime naval officer in a country without a standing navy, which meant he had nothing to do. He was about a generation too early to begin rebuilding the fleet to protect American trade routes overseas. He decided to return to Europe to recover the prize money owed to him from his second raid of the British Isles. Before doing that, though, Jones had a secret mission to undertake in London. He was carrying dispatches for John Adams, the new American minister to Great Britain. Others warned Jones about setting foot in England, but Jones rebuffed their fears. In an age without electronics or formal identification, the wanted pirate Paul Jones could simply adopt an assumed name and walk right into the capital of his former enemy. His mission with Adams accomplished, Jones crossed the channel and headed for Paris. There he undertook the painfully bureaucratic mission of chasing down the prize money owed. It was a long and arduous affair, and France was in poor financial shape, largely from backing the American cause. Jones was restless and unsure of what to do about it. It was now 1787, and Thomas Jefferson was the American minister to France. Jefferson had received an offer from Russia's Catherine the Great to commission Jones into the Navy as an admiral for a war against the Turks. This was an obscure offer, but still, it was Jones's only offer at the time. He accepted and set out for St. Petersburg. The voyage to St. Petersburg in the late 18th century was not an easy one, but Jones was excited to take up his new post. He dreamed of command of a fleet, and having the logistical and personal challenges he faced during the Revolution be things of the past. This was not to be the case. Russian politics and bureaucracy were even worse than they were in France or America. Jones was embraced by Catherine the Great, but derided by everyone else as a suspicious foreigner arriving to usurp power from the establishment. In essence, he was going to be doomed to repeat all of his past troubles, only amplified. Jones, now a rear admiral, took up his post at the southern mouth of the Dnieper River, where it empties into the Black Sea. Here, a makeshift Russian fleet would have to defeat a larger Turkish force to control the sea and advance on Constantinople. Jones's command consisted of 12 ships, eight of which were undergunned frigates. In addition, the Russians had amassed a motley assortment of road galleys, lightly armed, but capable of operating in the shallow waters of the area. These were under the command of Prince Charles of Nassau Seagan. Opposing the Russian fleet was a Turkish fleet consisting of 18 ships of the line and around 40 frigates. The fleet, under command of Captain Ghazi Hassan Pasha, was composed of Mediterranean sailors, pirates, and slaves. By comparison, Jones's squadron was comprised of ill-trained and scared men, mostly peasants from an assortment of nations. Jones himself did not speak Russian and had to have his orders translated. The two fleets met in early June of 1788 at the mouth of the Dnieper, which forms a large estuary with land on both sides. 
Jones positioned his forces in a semicircle, hoping to envelop the Turkish fleet and compensate for his poorly trained gunners. This tactic largely worked, despite panicking among the row galleys commanded by Prince Nassau Segan, and the Turkish fleet was forced to withdraw. It was a small victory, but it strained relations between Jones and his fellow commanders. Prince Nassau Segan resented Jones's role in the victory and desired sole credit for it. The overall Russian commander of the campaign, Prince Potemkin, sided with him. It was the same old story for Jones. His subordinates and superiors alike resented him, and his ability in battle was the only plank he had to stand on. The Turks attacked again in mid-June. On June 16th, the entire Turkish fleet massed and sailed headlong into the Russian fleet, a shock and awe tactic designed to simply overwhelm them. Unfortunately for the Turks, the drafts of the vessels were too great for the area, and the Turkish flagship ran aground. This halted the advance short of reaching the Russian fleet. On board his flagship, the Vladimir, Jones held a council of war. He proposed to envelop the now-anchored Turkish fleet by fighting the wind throughout the night and towing his ships into position around them. This largely accomplished by morning, Jones attacked. Now the Russian fleet was stalled by shallow water, but the row galleys commanded by Prince Nassau Segan could make up the difference. The Turks counterattacked and regrouped their smaller vessels for a shallow draft duel. That night, Admiral Jones personally inspected the Turkish fleet, sailing among the ships disguised as a local merchant. Panicking at the prospect of a prolonged battle no longer on their terms, the Turks tried to withdraw some of their larger ships under cover of darkness, but they quickly ran aground on the sandy shoals. Now the rift that had developed between Jones and Prince Nassau Segan reached a breaking point. The prince wanted to use his galleys to attack the grounded ships, but Jones knew they might be needed in the morning. Their argument reached a fevered pitch, and the prince defied orders and left to attack the ships on his own. He fired on the ships from afar, engulfing them in flames. Many of the enslaved sailors aboard the Turkish ships had no escape from the conflagration. This was not to Jones's liking, as he would later say that it was no great feat of seamanship to attack grounded vessels. He resented that the battle had not been ended on his terms. Prince Nassau Segan and Prince Potemkin took full credit for the Russian victory, with Jones's status seemingly reduced to simply being there. But the Turkish fleet had not been entirely destroyed, and on July 1st, the Russians attempted to eliminate them once and for all. The attack failed, though Jones showed particular courage in this assault, beginning with personal command of a small vessel and capturing two successively larger vessels by boarding and engaging them in hand-to-hand -hand combat. The battle for control of the Dnieper estuary ground to a stalemate. Inaction was always an enemy of Jones, and he continued to squabble with his commander. As a result, Prince Potemkin dismissed him from a further role in the campaign. Forlorn, Jones returned to St. Petersburg. Essentially finished in the Russian Navy, he still had no other prospects, so he remained, despite a fully worn-out welcome. In April, Jones was swept up in a scandal when he was accused of raping a 10-year-old girl in St. Petersburg. The evidence against Jones was not enough to bring a trial, as the girl admitted she was paid to tell a damaging story regarding Jones. Many at the time believed that Prince Nassau Segan was behind the allegations. Still, Jones's reputation was essentially ruined, and he left Russia in disgrace in 1789. Jones wandered throughout Europe. He met with the Polish hero of the American Revolution. Tadeusz Kosciuszko, who encouraged him to join the Swedish Navy. Jones, however, eventually found himself back in Paris, now in the early throes of the French Revolution.
Harris had largely forgotten about Jones. Even though he had once been honored with the title of Chevalier and given a sword by Louis XVI, there were no other offers for a great command from the surrounding nations of Europe, and Jones was forced to live off his admiral's pension from Russia. Jones tried to lobby for various postings in vain. He was a man whose glory days were now long behind him, and he seemed unable to accept that fact. Jones's health began to worsen over the next few years in Paris, and he died of interstitial nephritis, a kidney illness, on July 18, 1792. Ironically, after he died, a letter arrived from America appointing Jones a citizen of the United States and American consul to Algeria. He was to lead a delegation to free American prisoners from the Barbary pirates. This is the kind of job Jones would have jumped at, a chance to serve his adopted home nation and possibly repair some of the damage to his reputation, though it's unclear if he would have been able to excel at a job that did not include command in battle. In death, Jones was snubbed by the American community in Paris, but he was honored by the revolutionary French government, and a French citizen paid for his burial in a decent cemetery. He even paid for a lead coffin and an alcohol preservative so that his countrymen could reclaim him in the future, should they ever desire. This was indeed to be the case, but not for over a hundred years. Around the turn of the 20th century, General Horace Porter, American ambassador to France, took on a personal mission to find Jones's body. He knew the circumstances of Jones's burial, and armed with an old map of Paris, he went in search of the site. Porter searched for six years until he found the correct location of the St. Louis Cemetery for Protestant aliens. In the century since the burial, the cemetery had been overgrown and overbuilt with a grocery store and a laundry, among other buildings. Porter lacked the necessary funds to excavate once the site was likely identified. An unlikely source took interest in the project. President Theodore Roosevelt was a student of American history and had admired Jones. He persuaded Congress to appropriate $35,000 to continue the project. In 1905, five leaden coffins were discovered, among many other remnants of human remains that had not survived intact. The third coffin contained Jones's body, identified by the stench of the alcohol preservative and the unmistakable resemblance to busts of Jones. His hair and skin were still intact, and photographs were taken that show this resemblance. An autopsy was conducted that revealed the person in question died of kidney failure. With Jones now identified, the fight to claim his body was on. Many cities on the U.S. East Coast vied to be the final resting place, the naval hero. For a man who died in relative obscurity in Paris and was largely forgotten by America, this was indeed an irony. It was finally decided that John Paul Jones would lie in state at the United States Naval Academy at Annapolis, Maryland. Jones's procession in 1906 dwarfed his tepid funeral in 1792. His body was escorted through the streets of Paris with full military honors, taken to Cherbourg, and loaded aboard the USS Brooklyn, bound for America. President Theodore Roosevelt presided over the ceremony to welcome Jones back to America in 1906. In 1913, he was placed in an ornate marble sarcophagus at the Naval Academy, modeled on the tomb of Napoleon. Due to Jones's direct connection to slavery, rape allegations against him, and other misdeeds throughout his life, it remains to be seen if Jones's final resting place is in fact final. Jones's legacy has wavered in the 200 plus years since his death. Both James Fenimore Cooper and Alexander Dumas penned novels based on Jones, but for the most part, he was forgotten by the common people, who favored Washington and Lafayette 
as the military heroes of the revolution. He gained prominence again in the 1900s, especially in naval circles. Jones's quotes are mainstays of indoctrination into the U.S. sea services. Three capital ships have borne the name USS Bonham Richard and two destroyers, USS John Paul Jones. Yet his deeds are largely forgotten again, as interest in early American history has waned overall, and the stage name of the bassist from Led Zeppelin became just as prominent as that of the early Continental Navy sea captain. Still, the town of Whitehaven, which Jones had raided in 1778, remembered him and saw fit to issue a formal pardon for the event in 1999. John Paul Jones lived a hard life, died relatively young, and trouble seemed to follow him wherever he went, which is probably a sign that, except in battle, he was his own worst enemy. He wasn't a man who would have done well in modern times, or in peacetime in general, but he rose to the occasion when his young adopted country needed it to happen. He lacked the temperament and ethical values to take full advantage of his talents, yet no one could deny his personal bravery and boldness at sea, and his ability to make something out of nothing, truly rare quality in a commander. His story is a fascinating tale of 18th century life during the troubled times that defined that era. Thanks for listening to Ship Sagas. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast player to hear more interesting tales from the sea. A special shout out to anyone listening on Watch Tonight. Until next time, I wish you fair winds and following seas.